Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday, we find out how Canada and Denmark managed to finally reach a friendly resolution to a decades-long dispute over Hans Island. The two countries will divide the tiny rock just 1,000 kilometers south of the North Pole in half, giving us a border with a European country. We look ahead to the release of a vast and lengthy inquiry into money laundering in British Columbia called the Cullen Commission. What might we expect? And we look back to 40 years since the release of Steven Spielberg's E.T. and find out why the film still resonates. But first, the federal government announces it will drop vaccine mandates for domestic and outbound international travelers, as well as federally regulated workers. Why now? And is the time right or long overdue? But first up, the federal government, as you may have heard today, is suspending COVID-19 vaccine mandates for domestic travel, uh, outbound international travel, and federally regulated workers. Uh, since October 30th of last year, those over the age of 12 who weren't vaccinated were barred from boarding a plane or train in this country. Here's Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra. On June 20th, our government will suspend the requirement to be vaccinated in order to board a plane or train in Canada. Employers in the federally regulated transportation sector will also no longer need to have vaccination requirement for their employees. So why now? Officials say that encouraging COVID-19 trends are a factor in the upcoming changes to those mandates with the number of hospitalizations, cases and deaths having fallen. And experts expect that trend to continue. The change, of course, will also affect federal workers who've been put on unpaid leave because of their vaccination status. Here's Treasury Board President Mona Fortier. As of that date, employees of the core public administration, including the RCMP, will no longer be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19 as a condition of employment. Employees who are on administrative leave without pay as a result of the vaccination policy will be contacted by their managers to resume regular duties with pay, and the bargaining agents have been informed. That's Mona Fortier, the Treasury Board President there. So ministers warned the government, though, is prepared to bring back the policies if there's a resurgence of the virus, virus in the fall. So is this the right decision at the right time? Joining me is Dr. Zane Chagla. He's an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University and a consultant physician at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton. Thank you for your time tonight. Hi, thanks for having me. So just a first reaction to this, I gather it's about time. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I uh, am glad that uh, domestic travelers have the ability to travel unabated uh, without any restrictions to the country. I think that's reasonable considering the evidence around vaccines and preventing transmission. It is still, you know, one step a little bit too less for the international travel piece where uh, vaccinated travelers will still, uh, sorry, unvaccinated travelers will still have to face a quarantine when returning to Canada uh, internationally. Um, you know, hopefully again, this can be revised to to fit with kind of more of a, a free travel criteria and, and recognizing the evidence around vaccination. But, you know, thankfully, you know, this is moving in the right direction to, to really uh, making travel, you know, much more um, open and, and uh, like it was pre-pandemic. What about for, uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of us just sort of listen to what the government's saying and saying, you know, these things are necessary and, and uh, they've been necessary right up until now. Uh, but there's very little, at least they're sharing very little evidence. And the, and the ministers today were not able to provide much uh, in the way of reasonings about why now and why not two weeks ago or why not three weeks ago or why not at the end of the month? 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is an important point. And, you know, I think the writing was pretty much on the wall in terms of two doses of vaccine and and, uh, and its efficacy against transmission, you know, in, in January, February, March. Uh, you know, provinces took this into account as they dropped their proof of vaccination uh, through many jurisdictions and settings, uh, kind of through, you know, February, March, and April. And so, you know, if all that data is available, when the writing is pretty much on the wall at that point, it is a bit perplexing why we're talking about this for a change on June 20th. Uh, and so, you know, there is that that really does need to be considered here. And, and these decisions have public trust associated with them. So we want to make sure that, yes, measures were put in place and public health measures are put in place to help protect people. But when their evidence really has run out, that we take them away uh, as fast as we put them in, in order to make sure that, again, we, uh, we, we you know, continue public trust in that sense. So listeners understand what is the evidence saying right now? Because we hear lots of contradictory things about, about, uh, about vaccine mandates. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, vaccinations are still very important for preventing individual risk of severe disease. And, and even two doses provides that three doses a bit more. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there is still good reason for people to be vaccinated for reducing their individual risk of getting sick from COVID-19. But the risk of symptomatic infection, so me or you getting COVID-19 and having symptoms, was really, really reduced with Omicron. And, you know, two doses of a vaccine, 15 to 20 weeks out of that second dose, likely had lost most of its benefit uh, in terms of preventing COVID-19. Three doses of a vaccine may restore some of that benefit. But even then, you know, data from the UK suggests over time, it really does wane over time. The last estimates from the UK Health Security Agency is 0 to 15% at 20 plus weeks post-vaccine. Uh, and so, you know, I think when this becomes apparent and, you know, the, the, the original thought behind vaccine mandates is that reducing symptomatic transmission would then mean that, you know, places would become safe. Well, when that really approaches the general population in terms of prevention, there's really not a justification here. And then the other piece is with Omicron, look, there's about 10% of people in Canada that have not gotten vaccinated. The vast majority of them have probably acquired COVID-19 at this point. And that, based on newer evidence, really does count for some protection, at least against severe disease uh, and probably equivalent protection against kind of symptomatic diseases, two and three doses of vaccine over time. Um, Were the mandates effective overall? I guess the question is what what was the what was the desired outcome? I think in October, November, December, when Delta was around, um, you know, there was data suggesting probably that they did you know, reduce transmission if they were done perfectly. You know, there, there were still questions. You know, children, for example, didn't need to be vaccinated, uh, and so you know they were functioning vaccinated people on a flight that could transmit the disease. If the so so probably they did offer something. Um, if the goal was to increase um, individuals getting vaccinated, I don't think they were particularly effective in general. And most provinces had an uptake of about three or four percent after November thirtieth. Uh, um, you know whether or not we consider that from travel alone or from other reasons like uh, positive healthcare enforcement, etc. So, you know, I don't think they increased uptake. The uptake of vaccines is very, very slow these days and, and really very few first doses being administered nationally. And so, you know, I think they probably hit their saturation point of what they could do from an uptake standpoint as well. 
What would you say to listeners who feel who would feel less safe traveling, not knowing that everyone in their car or on their flight is vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, look, today on, on June 14th, if you got on a plane, the person sitting beside you could be someone under the age of 12 who isn't doesn't need to be vaccinated to be there. Uh, could be someone that had a single dose of a Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Could be someone that has the WHO-approved vaccine that isn't approved in Canada, where we know efficacy is quite low. Could have two doses of a vaccine that is six months out that probably is at the same risk of transmitting. Uh, and so all of those people are probably the same risk as someone who's unvaccinated sitting beside you. And so, you know, when you kind of start breaking that down and saying that person beside you is the same risk on June, July, sorry, June 14th, as it will be on June 20th, uh, it really, you know, should comfort people to say, you know, they take their own personal risks while traveling, but the risks have been significantly changed with dropping this vaccine mandate. I'm speaking with Dr. Zane Chagla. He's an associate professor of medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University. We're talking about the federal government today announcing that they're dropping vaccine mandates for travel within the country and for Canadians uh, going abroad, not necessarily for when they return, the unvaccinated at least, uh, as well as for uh, for federally regulated employees as well, certainly in the transportation sector. After this, we'll talk a bit more just about uh, about whether we'll see these again, whether they are effective enough to bring them back and under what circumstances that could happen. Uh, We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Dr. Zane Chagla, an associate professor of medicine at the Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University, a consultant physician at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton. We're talking about the federal government today announcing uh, that they are dropping vaccine mandates for travel within the country for the unvaccinated. Uh, Dr. Chagla, when you look back at this, is this something that, I mean, certainly the uh, the it was mentioned today that these could be brought back if necessary. Under what circumstances could that happen? And and would, would the federal government be in a position to make that happen now with with sort of the um with just how this has all unfolded over the last few months yeah it is a good question and it's complex because you know obviously this virus is uh is evolving and and what happens today you know is very different than what happens tomorrow and it's hard to make these predictions i will say though the the trajectory of of this virus over the last six months since Omicron has emerged has been immune evasion. And so, you know, BA1, BA2, what we're seeing in BA4, BA5 is, you know, more escape from people that have antibodies to COVID-19, not necessarily leading them to getting sicker, but having repeat infections over time. And so if that is the case, then it's going to be very hard to say unless vaccine technology changes immensely that uh, you know proof of vaccine is going to do anything more today than it will do tomorrow and the next day in terms of reducing transmission. Even if community rates are higher, um, they'll likely be higher from the fact that vaccine efficacy will be even lower over time, not higher. Um, you know, I think if, if we do get new vaccines, new technologies, that does need to be evaluated. But at the same time, you know, with as much people that have been infected today and, you know, or, or got a, a immunity through natural infection or vaccination, it's going to be, again, hard to justify um, imposing this when people's risk of severe disease is very different than it was in 2020. So, you know, absolutely, we have to be humbled and, and kind of see things as they come. But the bar to reinstitute a mandate needs to be extremely high. And again, the way things are looking right now with the technologies we have in place, I don't see that happening over time. Um, there was discussion today of, of updating the, the definition of fully vaccinated to include that booster shot? Is that something that, that we should do? And what impact would that have? 
So, you know, I, I, absolutely, you know, three doses of vaccine probably does offer more protection than two, both from, you know, symptomatic disease over time, you kind of refresh and then again, it does wean over time, uh, but also, you know, a bit more protection against severe disease. There's anecdotal data suggesting even this, the, um, the recovery from disease is a bit better in people that have three doses versus two. And so, you know, when you look back at the series now, a year later or a year and a half later, and you're offering it to an individual off the bat, you know, there may be a need to say we should redefine this as you get a dose, you get another dose at eight months, and you get another dose six months later, which is similar to our other vaccines like hepatitis B, where where that happens. And that's really that redefinition of three doses as what the primary vaccine series would be. I think, though, the practical piece on top of this is between dose two and three, a lot of people got Omicron. And looking at the data that's at least available you know, the, the equivalent of being getting a booster dose is, is kind of in that same ballpark as getting Omicron in that sense. And so, you know, many people probably immunologically meet the definition of three dose vaccinated, even though they haven't gotten three doses. And so when we talk about things like mandating it, it really, really gets tricky at that point. So, so you know, there, there are ways to introduce this as a three-dose vaccine, kind of moving forward and saying we recognize this is probably a three-dose versus a two-dose vaccine, but at the same time, not instituting that. And again, really talking about how tricky mandates are moving forward because of how much COVID has gone to the community. And again, everyone's immunity is on very different timelines. So you do still recommend um, a booster? I mean, do you still recommend vaccination, just not mandating it? Yeah, absolutely. And again, people who are particularly over the age of 50, um, who, who have not gotten three doses of vaccine should be getting it. You know, and, and especially if you're someone that has not seen uh, COVID in the last two and a half years, you probably should make sure your vaccine series is up to date as it should. Um, but again, you know, mandating it to a 20 year old that's gotten two doses of vaccine and had Omicron where the risk of severe disease is incredibly low. You know, again, there is a, a threshold there that that can't be reached right now. How would when you look back then since these came into place, how would you then uh, you know, what have we learned with this mandate uh, with these federal government mandates? We saw them provincially as well. But what have we learned uh, with these with this mandate uh, in place? Yeah, I think, again, this constant review, re-review, transparency, the need to reevaluate, and the need to bring them down when times come, you know, is a big lesson learned, right? Denmark did a very good job of this, saying we will protect you when uh, when we, we feel it's important, but when we feel like the measures in place have, have passed their, their expiry date, we will take them out. And, and they did it very quickly. They were one of the first countries to drop vaccination as a, as a requirement to enter the country. Uh, and so, you know, it is that two-way relationship. And I think, you know, unfortunately, this has become so polarized uh, that, you know, public health trust has been scarred by a lot of this. And, and we really do have to recognize that as we move forward in this, you know, dealing with COVID-19 long-term, public trust is, is really important for our ability to move forward. You know, resources are a great addition to make sure that we have better control of this pandemic, but restrictions and mandates really have to be the last resort and have a very, very high bar to come up and a very low bar to come down. I guess that's how you you unpolarize it to some extent is just follow the science, right? Exactly. And and work quickly towards it. I, I, has that not been done? Is that your sense that this just took too long for, for reasons of polarization politics? I mean, I know that's a, sort of outside your lane, but is, is that the impression that you were getting? 
look, I don't know what happened in those meetings when, when this was brought up. Um, I, you know, would, it, the writing has been on the wall, so I'm assuming it's brought up before. I, look, I, 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 I give trust to people that they make the decisions in the, in power that may, they make the decisions to protect the population, but, you know, they have to be cognizant of the fact that their ability to make decisions based on the science and based on supporting more population has to be, you know, with public trust in mind more than anything else. And, and I hope, again, we learn that lesson moving forward. Dr. Chagla, thank you so much for your time. No problem. All the best. Well, here's some good news in the world of diplomacy for you today. Uh, not all battles over territory need be hostile ones or have hostile ends. Take the case of tiny uninhabited Hans Island in the Arctic. Now, Canada and Denmark have been arguing in a friendly kind of way for decades over who exactly it belongs to. It's 18 kilometers between Ellesmere Island, which is Canadian, and Greenland, which is Denmark. Technically, it's it's 18 kilometers from each, so it's right in the middle. So it was always under dispute. Well, we have a settlement now. We will share the 1.3 kilometer uh, square rock almost uh, down the middle. Uh, we've reached an agreement uh, on it, and um, that seems like good news. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie uh, formally signed the deal today in Ottawa with the Danish Foreign Minister and Greenland's Prime Minister, who is here as well. Uh, here's what Melanie Jolie had to say about it. We wanted to give momentum, particularly in light of February 24th, what happened with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so it's symbolic because it, at the time where it's happening, as we're seeing that there's an illegal and unjustifiable invasion. Second, it is important because we're setting a precedent, like I said before. And third, I think that we're showing today that um, we can work together and solve problems. And there you go. That's how the uh, the Battle of Hans Island was solved. Well, joining me now with more on this is Michael Byers. He's the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for your time. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So this seems like a pretty happy story all in all, at least a happy uh, finish to it. Uh, maybe a bit of a history lesson here for listeners who may not remember much more about Hans Island than a few bottles being buried and flags being raised over the years. Well, we, we only discovered that uh, there was uh, a, an island of uncertain uh, ownership uh, in the middle of Nars Strait way back in 1973 when Canada and Denmark were negotiating the maritime boundary between Greenland and Canada. And they came across this rock, and it was right in the middle. And because the negotiators did not have a mandate to negotiate a land border, they left the island to be resolved in a couple of years. So they did the whole maritime boundary. They left the island thinking they'd come back in a year or two and negotiate that also. But then Canadian and Danish politicians discovered that this disputed island was actually a domestic political opportunity, an Arctic sovereignty dispute with a very close ally where there was no risk of going to war and where the island itself was worthless. There was nothing there to fight over, just the symbolism of an Arctic sovereignty dispute. I guess politicians can never resist a little piece of symbolism. So we did see, uh, and as you mentioned, there's, real no, there's no real value to it. There's nothing there. I gather it's uh, Inuit uh, hunting areas, perhaps at the most. But so, so what happened over the years? There was a bit of a, a 
a tussle in the in the mid knots over uh, over a Bill Graham visit, I remember, uh, and and some whiskey, some bottles of alcohol planted back and forth between the two sides. Was it ever serious? I mean, there, was it ever tense? Well, I've actually gone back and checked the dates of all of the visits to Hans Island by Danish and Canadian officials and soldiers. And curiously enough, the the Danes always visited shortly before a Danish election campaign. And the Canadians always visited shortly before a Canadian election campaign. And this went on for several decades. So in other words, uh, Hans Island was uh, weaponized for the purposes of domestic politics in both countries. Um, you know, Canadians and Danes both care about Arctic sovereignty, and uh, and politicians weren't above using that. And you mentioned Bill Graham, who was Canada's defense minister at the time, who flew to Hans Island in a helicopter, a very expensive trip, uh, in order to uh, uh, basically beat his chest about Arctic sovereignty shortly before a Canadian election. But both sides knew that, that this wasn't a, a really serious international dispute. And the way they indicated that to each other was by leaving alcohol behind on the island. So the Canadians would leave a bottle of Canadian club whiskey uh, among the rocks of a, a cairn on the top of the island. Uh, the Danes would show up a year or two later, they'd drink the whiskey, and they'd leave behind a bottle of Danish schnapps. And this again went on for decades, and it thus became known as the Whiskey War. Now, Michael, you've been calling for this to be settled for quite a while now, <laughs> and, and and I was wondering how you, why this is a subject that you felt uh, you know strongly about, just in in the sense that you thought maybe this was a bit of a, a bit of a waste of time when there was so much else out there to talk about when it came to Arctic sovereignty. I would suspect. Yeah, it's partly that there are far more serious things to talk about. Uh, you know, we actually have a a long-standing dispute over the status of the Northwest Passage with the United States. And that dispute matters, especially in the longer term as the sea ice melts and and accessibility for international shipping uh, improves. Um, and we have uh, some issues in the Central Arctic Ocean uh, with Russia that require a lot of diplomacy. Um, they're going well, but they still require a lot of diplomacy uh, and, and may become difficult now given the breakdown in relations uh, with Russia uh, due to the Ukraine war. So Hans Island was, was really you know, small potatoes compared to these other things. But at the same time, it, it was an opportunity. It, it, it is an opportunity um, because, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's very clear that, that you could do something uh, constructive with this situation. You could, you know, draw a line down the middle. You could, as uh, the Canadian and Danish government did today, use a, a small gully that passes more or less down the middle to mark the, the, the border. Or you could have done what a Danish colleague and I proposed seven years ago and actually declare the island a legal condominium. So not a condominium in the sense that we think about it in cities, but a, a place of shared sovereignty where, where both countries uh, would have sovereignty over the same piece of land and co-manage uh, the island. Uh, that was the, the option that attracted me the most. It's, it's not unprecedented, but it is unusual. And it would truly symbolize the cooperation between the two countries. But sadly, that's not the option that the two governments chose. Why do you think that is? Why do, you, why do we need all of a sudden this island divided in half and uh, essentially, I guess, our first border uh, with a European nation, quote unquote? Yeah, um, well, it is a bit ridiculous in that 
if you have enough money, you could take a, uh, a small ice-strengthened Arctic cruise ship uh, to the Canadian High Arctic in the future and go ashore on Hans Island in a Zodiac and uh, you know, proceed to step back and forth across the international border between Canada and the Kingdom of Denmark. I should say that, that Hans Island is not part of the European Union because uh, Greenland is not part of the European Union, but Greenland is part of Denmark, and, and so technically it is European. Um, so lots of fun to be had with that uh, in terms of uh, you know selfies and uh, bragging rights, but uh, um, yeah, a condominium would have been, you know, I think, a, a, a much more... Uh, uh, symbolic way of, of symbolizing the uh, the high degree of cooperation that Canada has with Denmark. And let me underline this. Denmark and Canada are partners in NATO. We're partners in the Canada-European Union Free Trade Agreement. And I you know, sometimes joke that Canadians spend more on Lego blocks than any other country, which are, of course, imported from Denmark. I've actually been, I've been to Copenhagen. So yeah, you could, Lego is certainly a big part of, uh, part of Danish society and we are big fans of it. Were you impressed with just how this came together? I mean, it, it as you mentioned, it, it was symbolic, but sometimes symbolism matters in these, in these affairs. Yeah, it, it's been a, a while coming. Uh, there was a, an agreement signed back in 2005 to, to work towards an agreement uh, that, when Stephen Harper was Prime Minister because Mr. Harper made Arctic sovereignty a big part of his political brand. And then when Justin Trudeau came into office, uh, he, he didn't uh, focus on Arctic sovereignty. The, the issue uh, you know, lost prominence that probably helped this solution come about. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been going for a while in terms of the negotiations. Um, you know, how do I say this? There, there's some very very capable men and women who, who work in the Canadian Foreign Service who've been looking at this as, as something that, that made sense, that they wanted to achieve. And I think the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine created the, the optimal uh, situation because it provided, as, as Melanie Jolie, the Canadian Foreign Minister, said you know, earlier in this segment, it provided the opportunity for Canada and Denmark to show how responsible countries solve their territorial disputes. They do so through negotiations. They do so uh, peacefully. And, and that's a signal not just to Russia, but perhaps also to China when you think about China's claims in the South China Sea or you know, its aspirations with regards to Taiwan. You know, this, this Hans Island Agreement isn't going to solve those problems, but it's a way of, of sending a signal nevertheless. I'm speaking with Michael Byers. We're talking about uh, an agreement reached today officially by uh, Canada and Denmark to uh, to divide a little piece of rock right uh, just a thousand kilometers south of the North Pole that sits 18 kilometers from Canada and 18 kilometers from Greenland or in the Kingdom of Denmark. So we've decided amicably to split the island in half uh, and share it, essentially. Uh, they did talk a lot about Russia today, and it was interesting, to, and you mentioned some of this earlier, but just about some of the challenges that lie ahead that will certainly be more difficult than settling the Hans Island issue. Challenges that lie ahead uh, between Canada and other Arctic nations uh, in terms of, of just settling some of the territorial disputes that exist uh, in the in the region. And you mentioned as well, especially with the with the war in Ukraine, we'll get to that after this. 
My guest this half hour is Michael Byers, the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at UBC. We're talking about an agreement reached today, or at least announced today, by Canada and Denmark over Hans Island, a tiny piece of rock uh, about a thousand kilometers south of the North Pole uh, that Canada and uh, Denmark have agreed to share. Uh, half-half is a good way of putting it. Uh, but there are many more complex uh, diplomatic issues in the Arctic these days. And, uh, uh, Michael, I, I guess I, I remember reading about a trip you took eight, a while back now, I guess about 15, 16 years ago, where you witnessed sort of the, how fast Arctic sea ice was was melting and just how quickly that this would cause uh, issues when it came to negotiating what happens in the, in the far north. And I guess with the war in Ukraine, none of this has become any easier. Yeah, I've uh, I've traveled to the the Arctic on on a number of occasions. I've I've actually been through the Northwest Passage a couple of times on uh, Canada's research icebreaker, the uh, the Admonson, um, and, and the first voyage that I made was in two thousand and six, mm-hmm. and I was struck by uh, by how the Coast Guard crew and the scientists on board were, were shocked by how quickly the the ice was was melting as compared to, to previous years. And of course, it's, it's only become worse since then. Um, you know, I've traveled to um, Baffin Island, to uh, Aluktuk National Park, um, the, the place that the Inuktuk the, 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 the name, the Inuit name for it is the, the place that never melts. And on successive visits, I've seen an entire glacier disappear. You know, climate change is real and, and the Arctic is on the front line of it. And uh, one of the consequences is that, uh, that, that, that the Arctic Ocean and the Northwest Passage are becoming more accessible uh, to ships, and that includes uh, foreign shipping. Um, now, the, 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 the Northwest Passage is benefiting from the fact that uh, you know, climate change brings a lot of unpredictable weather, so we still get serious Arctic storms. The remaining sea ice is much more mobile. It moves around in unpredictable ways. And ironically, we're actually seeing more icebergs than we used to because icebergs come from glaciers on land and the glaciers are moving more quickly into the ocean as a result of climate change. So it's still a very dangerous place for ships and that's keeping most of the foreign shipping away for the moment, but probably not, you know, in the long term, and, and we need, among other things, to resolve our dispute with the United States over the status of the Northwest Passage, where we argue that we have full control, and the United States argues that it's an international strait open to foreign ships without Canada's permission. Has there been any movement on it at all? I realize that, I guess, traditionally we've agreed to disagree, right? We, we've agreed to disagree um, since 1988, when... Uh, uh, Brian Mulroney was Prime Minister, uh, Joe Clark was Foreign Minister, uh, and President Ronald Reagan visited Ottawa, and uh, uh, he and, and Brian Mulroney got along very well and uh, told their, uh, their officials to, uh, to sort it out. And the, the agreement that uh, was uh, negotiated among the, the officials was that, uh, that the United States would... Uh, always uh, seek permission from Canada before sending a U.S. Coast Guard icebreaker through the Northwest Passage, and Canada promised to always give permission. So 
it was a, a, an agreement that, that enabled both sides to, uh, um, to say that uh, the situation had not changed while allowing them to, to cooperate. And it's actually called, the treaty is called the Arctic Cooperation Agreement. Um, I guess we're waiting for a moment when you know, Canada can negotiate with the United States on this issue. That wasn't going to happen when Donald Trump was president. Um, it could conceivably happen with Joe Biden as president uh, because the Canadian government gets along better with this administration. But, of course, Mr. Biden's pretty busy these days with other things. So, uh, yeah. you know, we wait. Um, but the fact that we've actually come to an agreement with Denmark could create some momentum. And uh, I'm actually hopeful that the same team of Canadian diplomats will now move on to the next uh, Arctic sovereignty dispute. Well, I'll have to save Russia for our next conversation. Michael Byers, thanks so much uh, for uh, keeping our listeners up to date on exactly what this Hans Island resolution was all about and putting it into some historical context. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. You may have heard about uh, the money laundering issue in BC, something known as the Vancouver model to top it all off in money laundering. It's uh, fairly complex, fairly sophisticated, and uh, there was a commission called into it a while back, actually. Uh, They did 138 hearing days. They heard from 198 witnesses, received 1,063 exhibits, comprising more than 70,000 pages. And tomorrow, the uh, Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia, or the Cullen Commission, as it's often called, will release its final report, expected to be more than 1,000 pages. Its mandate includes making findings of fact on the extent, growth, and methods of money laundering, and of course, to make recommendations. The government had been seeking public accountability for why decisions were made by casinos, the BC Lottery Corporation, and the government uh, contributing to BC becoming a hotbed, really, for laundering through casinos and the housing market. Here's how Premier John Horgan described the impact of that criminal activity when this inquiry was announced back in May of 2019. That criminal activity has had a material impact on people, whether it be the rise of of, uh, opioid addictions, the rise of opioid deaths as a result of overdoses, whether it was the extraordinary increase in housing costs, people were being affected by criminal activity in British Columbia. That's BC's Premier John Horgan speaking back in May of 2019 when the Cullen Commission was officially announced. Well, joining me now with more on this is Stephen Schneider. He's a professor of criminology at St. Mary's University in Halifax. He was, in fact, in fact, the first expert witness to appear in front of the commission back in May of 2020. He's also the author of Iced, the story of organized crime in Canada, published by HarperCollins. And he joins us now to uh, share some thoughts about what to expect tomorrow. Uh, Stephen Schneider, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. Um, you talked about this when you testified, but uh, perhaps listeners may forget exactly what the Vancouver model was, but it's not often that a that an individual city gets a whole uh, sort of process of money laundering named after it. What was it? Or is it? Well, the Vancouver model is, is a name that was originally applied uh, by an Australian professor that was looking at different forms of Chinese organized crime. But it's basically a, a moniker that's been applied to complex networks of criminal alliances um, and the methods that are used to transfer and launder the proceeds of crime in BC and internationally. And at the core of this was um, uh, Silver International Investments, which was a money service business in uh, Richmond. Um, their clients were reportedly Chinese nationals that were illegally transferring money out of China to Canada, as well as criminal organizations that were involved in drug trafficking. And so 
the principal activities allegedly undertaken um, in this operation was, was facilitating capital flight from China to Canada via what's called informal value transfer systems. And these were being used by wealthy Chinese nationals and corrupt government officials that are trying to get their money out of China into Canada. Uh, the money launderers are also collecting cash proceeds of drug trafficking from other criminal organizations. Um, the drug money uh, that was being supplied to them uh, was then uh, basically provided to the Chinese nationals that were transferring their cash or their value to, to Canada. Um, and all this was, was all the money was being laundered through casinos and real estate, mostly so. Um, so it was a complex system that was used not only to help launder, to expedite money from China, but also to launder uh, drug money in Canada. And then the, all that cash was used to basically send back to China and other offshore bank accounts to purchase drugs. So it was a, a fairly complex system that was used for a number of purchases. The, those behind the system were making money both uh, commissions for laundering the money. They are also lending the money out as a money laundering method and making interest through mortgages. Um, so it was a, a complex system, but it was, again, all about laundering the proceeds of crime, whether it was um, capital flight from China uh, or drug trafficking uh, proceeds um, in uh, British Columbia. Do we have any idea of how much money we're talking about here? No, there's been various estimates. I've seen ever from one billion to ten billion. Um, I, you know, I, I would again just guesstimate that it was somewhere between five and, and ten billion alone, because I've seen estimates that just in the real estate market alone, there was about close to four or five billion dollars that were laundered through uh, through the issuing of mortgages. You mentioned that this was a complex compared to traditional forms of money laundering. How so? Just because it was so organized and, and so uh, the network was so widespread? Yeah, and it was certainly the sheer amount of money. And it was also the way, again, that it was being laundered internationally. Um, the uh, We've never seen... Well, we haven't really usually when money is invested in real estate, for example, or laundered through real estate, it's it's invested in real estate. So the bad guys will just take their cash and, and purchase real estate here. It was laundered through mortgages. And while we've seen the bad guys take dirty money and lend it out as a mortgage um, and then, you know, the mortgage payments are are basically claimed as clean money, never will be seen it done on, on such a huge basis. Um, the individual behind this was essentially a loan shark. And so he had a lot of experience in lending out money. And so he used this experience as a loan shark to launder money through loans or, or mortgages. And, um, but it was, uh, the it was the combination of, of um, the, using capital flight cash from China and drug trafficking proceeds that sort of marrying these, a marriage of these two usually separate kind of uh, techniques that, that made it fairly unique. And so basically what happened was that um, the drug money was used uh, to cover the capital flight from China. Um, in other words, the drug, you know, the, when the individual from China wanted to transfer money from China to Canada, the drug money was used 
to basically establish the funds for that Chinese national in Canada, which is something we haven't seen before either. But it's also a tip of the iceberg in that we're increasingly seeing um, what we call professional money launderers or, or uh, underground money service businesses. And um, these are individuals that now specialize in, in laundering the proceeds of crime and laundering drug trafficking. And while this is not the only case, it certainly was one of the biggest that we're seeing uh, copycats out there as well in Ontario and other provinces. Um, uh, given why, the- why Vancouver in this case? I mean, it, it always lends itself to the question, why there? I mean, rules and regulations were in place that lent themselves to Vancouver becoming the hub for this? Well, there is a few reasons. Um, really, it was the fact that everything kind of revolved around um, uh, interactions and transactions with China. And uh, so you needed an individual who operated a money service business that already had strong inroads into the underground Chinese um, financial system. Um, China and Hong Kong have long had very significant underground banking systems. And that's why you still have a lot of um, Chinese nationals that deal in cash, uh, both in China, Hong Kong and in Vancouver. And so so you had... um, First and foremost, you needed somebody who had a strong understanding connection with the underground Chinese banking systems in order to expedite the capital flight from China. And um, again, so obviously in Richmond and in Vancouver, you had a very large Chinese population, uh, a large expatriate population that still had ties to China, to the banking system um, and to corrupt government officials. And um, if you read Sam Cooper's book, um, Willful Blindness, he goes into a lot of depth on the um, connections between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government and organized crime, which has presence in uh, BC. So there's a real significant overlap between the Chinese Communist Party and, and organized crime in areas like human trafficking and capital flight and corruption and money laundering. So. So, uh, so Vancouver obviously has those strong ties to China and, and individuals there that have strong ties to the underground Chinese banking system. Um, so, and, but again, you have to make it clear here that this was not just Chinese organized crime, that you had all sorts of independent drug traffickers from all sort of ethno-cultural backgrounds. Um, and again, not just Mexican drug cartels, but a lot of uh, local independent drug traffickers. Um, so it's a good example of how organized crime is not ethnic based, that it is, you know, as long as there's a way to make money, um, all the bad guys are work together and cross, you know, ethnic and cultural and national lines. And so, and again, BC has always had a lot of money in a lot of drug money in the system. Um, uh, because of the port of Vancouver, a lot of fentanyl and drugs from China come through there. You have a well-established network of, of organized crime, Chinese and otherwise. Um, and, of course, the real estate market there is such that um, it, there was this perception that we can hide a lot of drug money because there is such a large uh, um, real estate money uh, market in uh, British Columbia and, and Lower Mainland in particular. Speaking with Stephen Schneider, he's a professor of criminology at St. Mary's University in Halifax, one of the first expert witnesses or the first expert witness to appear in front of the Cullen Commission back in May of 2020. Uh, the Cullen Commission will release its final report uh, tomorrow, and we'll talk about what uh, what Professor Schneider is anticipating and what the impact might be after this. 
I'm speaking with Stephen Schneider. He's a professor of criminology at St. Mary's University in Halifax, the first expert witness to appear in front of the Cullen Commission back in May of 2020, and author of Iced, the Story of Organized Crime in Canada, published by HarperCollins. The Cullen Commission, of course, will release its final report tomorrow into money laundering, into this particular uh, inquiry into money laundering in Vancouver in B.C. Um, Professor Schneider, just, just how much, what are you expecting from the report? What would you be looking for in it in terms of what it's going to recommend specifically and what it's what it found well i think at the very least it's it's going to have to obviously address the deficiencies in the various levels of control with respect to money laundering that's that's obvious so what you saw to the whole the so-called vancouver model was a breakdown in control at pretty much every level where you needed that control of money laundering and and the um entry of proceeds of crime in the legitimate economy at, among private, private sector um, uh, companies in the real estate market and the casino market obviously dropped their ball, dropped the ball and, and um, didn't provide the, the proper controls to prevent um, the influx of large amounts of, of drug cash into the economy, um, the mortgage industry, uh, mortgage lending industry, at the regulatory level, obviously, there was a significant breakdown in, in their ability to control this problem and to prevent it, um, not just in real estate, but casinos. The casinos obviously were letting in uh, huge amounts of money, allowing individuals to launder cash uh, that should never have been allowed to do so. Uh, there was a breakdown at the political level. The, I guess the Liberal governments uh, dropped the ball in their fiduciary responsibility of protecting the public. Federal law enforcement, criminal law enforcement, proceeds of crime enforcement by the RCMP, obviously was severely, severely lacking. So really, you know, this was a perfect storm um, in that you had this huge organized crime, uh, money laundering, criminal conspiracy, and then a breakdown at every level that should have controlled this problem. So at the very least, I imagine Justice Cullen will be addressing the deficiencies at all these levels. Why were there? Why were they there? Um, what can we do to improve them? And you know whether or not, and whether or not he addresses the larger problem, the larger criminal organized crime problem that this is indicative of, um, will remain to be seen. Uh, because again, this is really a microcosm or the tip of an iceberg of a much larger problem of organized crime in this country um, and uh, drug trafficking in particular, including fentanyl trafficking, which has certainly contributed to one of the worst public health crisis as we've seen in in, in years because um, we know a lot of the money that was being laundered was coming from fentanyl trafficking so so I think at the very least he will address the deficiencies in all levels of the system from the private sector up to federal law enforcement and perhaps he may address the broader issues of how we deal with uh, better with drug trafficking and uh, organized crime in, in Canada. Because this certainly had an impact on the average British Columbian as well. We saw property values go up, but we don't know. I mean, there's been many estimates as to what the impact was, but this filtered right down through the entirety of of British Columbian society as well as Canadian society to some extent. Well, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, like I said, uh, part of this iceberg is, you know, the the problem of drug trafficking. And we've really, you know, the introduction of of fentanyl is an under- as a black market drug, really changed everything as far as drug trafficking and organized crime is concerned. So we've never seen a, a product that is as destructive uh, as this drug. And, and it's 
quite frankly, this it's leading to even more potent drugs, fentanyl. You know, organized crime is are innovators. They know how to how to create products to capture new markets. There's always going to be a new synthetic, you know, opioid drug out there. <clears throat> and um, you know, that's you know, one of the biggest issues facing British Columbia and Vancouver right now, obviously. Um, and it's why we've seen now the provincial government and the federal government look at decriminalizing small possession of small amount of drugs. So, um, so absolutely when it comes, this is, you know, part and parcel of that problem, the role of organized crime, the role of drug trafficking uh, in affecting people's lives. I mean, I'm from Vancouver. Everyone knows someone who's had been been hurt or uh, affected by um, drug overdoses, fatalities, and, uh, so at the very least, again, this hopefully commission will will peel back some layers on on on, on drug trafficking and and how it's supported um, by innocent people, including the private sector that launders the money. And uh, but again, if anything comes out of this, hopefully it'll you know another step in the right direction of trying to address the supply of, of fentanyl and other you know incredibly noxious uh, illicit drugs in society. Is that a lot of the money obviously was coming coming from there? I, I, as a last question, Professor Schneider, if you look at this globally, was was this a question of of, of just very sophisticated money laundering or or a combination of, uh, of of both? And you mentioned the perfect storm, a sort of regulatory fall down, oversight fall down, and a certain level of sophistication. This wasn't criminal genius, I didn't imagine. They ran a relatively sophisticated operation, but it should have been caught very early on. Um, especially when you saw large amounts of cash going into River Rock Casino. I mean, that right away should have triggered alarm bells. It was really more about a breakdown in controls at every level at where there should have been controls. Um, that's really the important point. But again, um, you know, this the case uh, is indicative of, of the massive amount of money laundering that does go on in British Columbia and Canada and the fact that we're now seeing the rise of, of similar professional money launderers um, who are establishing themselves or situating themselves to fill that demand. And as long, you know, as you have individuals that are, you know, sophisticated in laundering money and which also you have to remember is, is financing the purchase of drugs. It's not just laundering the proceeds of drug trafficking. It's used to finance drug purchases. As long as you have individuals playing that key role, um, that's going to continue to sustain the drug trafficking um, organizations and other criminal groups out there. Stephen Schneider, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. I wasn't surprised to realize that last weekend marked the 40th anniversary of the release of E.T., the extraterrestrial, Steven Spielberg's great 1982 movie starring Henry Thomas and, of course, a very young Drew Barrymore, um, seven at the time. It was a massive success. I don't even can't even tell you how many times I saw it. Um, I even started eating Reese's Pieces, of course, as we all did that summer and riding our BMX bikes around because it was such an iconic film. If you want to taste of what it was here's a clip et can you say that can you say et 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 be good be good i taught him that too you should give him his dignity this is the most ridiculous thing i've ever seen oh 
phone. He said phone? He said phone? Can't you understand English? He said phone. Home? You're right. That's E.T.'s home. E.T. Home phone. Phone home. E.T. Phone home. E.T. Phone home. There you go. The iconic phone home. Joining me now is Kevin Martin. He's the owner of the Lobby Video Store at Edmonton. Kevin, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, anytime, Ben. Uh, can never go wrong with talking some old school Spielberg. No kidding. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw it? Sort of? Yeah, 1982, six-year-old yeah. me in the theater, dragged by my father, and it's funny, Ben, I just, you know, I thought I'd you know, jog my memory, so I watched it yesterday at my old video store, and uh, man, still right in the feels, brother, right in the still feels. Good. Still good? So good. So I'd heard this thing, maybe you can clear this up for me, because I was about 11 when it came out, I'm older, I'm older by a bit, um, and I was told that kids who'd seen it who were a bit younger we're a bit freaked out by it. Like it wasn't really a kid. It wasn't a Disney film by any stretch of the imagination. It was a real, like there were a lot of pretty, there's a lot of, it was a roller coaster ET. I, even I found it at that age. Well, to be honest, you know, it, it was the design of ET itself was kind of, well, it, it, we'd never seen anything like it. Right. And like, I'm so grateful that, uh, you know, our generation got to grow up in the 80s uh, when it came to movies because, like, I don't, you know, we never want to sound like the old guys. Like, movies aren't the same anymore, but it was something magical back then. And the practical effects were, were a big, big thing in, in, in that decade. And the look of E.T. was just so unique. You know, Ben, I'm sure you maybe realize or don't realize, originally, E.T. was meant to be a sequel to Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 77. The studio was right. really pressuring him to do a sequel. So originally the idea was it was going to be more of a horror movie themed genre about, uh, you know, the ET type of aliens coming down and terrorizing uh, a suburban family. But at the last minute, Spielberg, who had already been working on another project dealing with growing up in a single family home in the suburbs, which was still a theme in ET, that felt more important to him. So the studio decided to take one idea instead of making it a group of aliens terrorizing a suburban family, turning into ghosts, and that became Poltergeist, the other movie that he was involved with that same year. And then Spielberg got to take the more family-friendly version using this alien concept to create E.T., which is pretty cool. It is. And I gather there was a lot about his own growing up, like, you know, the, the divorced parents living in the yep. herbs. There was a lot about that movie, even though, and he was only 35 at the time. I forget how young he was when he started making big movies. But even when he made E.T., he was just in his mid-30s. So he wasn't that far removed from being that, you know, young boy growing up in the burbs. No, not at all. And it's funny when, when, you know, it's funny when we're like, oh, they want to talk to him already about a Steven Spielberg movie. And, you know, you're thinking, well, which one? I mean, the man had made so many. He literally created the summer blockbuster with Jaws, which is my personal favorite movie of all time. I make no bones about that. Then he no comes back with, uh, with Close Encounters. Then he does Raiders of the Lost Ark and reinvents that whole story arc of the, uh, the adventure movie. And then he makes E.T., but all of his movies, he felt very personal about it, dealing with, yeah, a guy that grew up in, in the suburbs from kind of a broken family. His folks were divorced at a young age, and that was a, a theme he always wanted to carry on. And, 
you know, rewatching E.T. yesterday again, yeah, it is about the alien and about, you know, the amazing special effects and John Williams' score and, and how it's still getting the feels. But it kind of created that whole 80s genre of, of young kid adventure movies, you know, which would spawn to the Goonies and Explorers and Gremlins and even the Monster Squad. But it 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 boggles my mind, Ben, that looking back in movie history, when Spielberg pitched the movie to Columbia TriStar, they had the original dibs on it. They thought it would fail. They said, nope, it's too family friendly. So he had to go to Universal Studios instead, and they took a chance on it. And of course, at the time, E.T. became the highest grossing movie ever made. It beat out his old buddy George Lucas's Star Wars by a long shot, which is pretty crazy to think. Yeah, it was everywhere. I, I I always loved that story that they had also approached M&M's to be the, the candy of choice, and they said no. Uh, so Reese's Pieces, thus the Reese's Pieces. One of the things I always found really, and you're right, it does remind me of movies like Stand By Me, which are really movies yep. about kids doing kids things, seen from a... One of the things I found just rewatching parts of it over the weekend was that the whole thing was filmed from kind of a kid's perspective, other than the ones that are filmed from E.T.'s perspective. That, And I found that really interesting to notice again. Yeah, it absolutely was. And and to the, they couldn't have picked uh, better actors, like child actors. I mean, obviously, Drew Barrymore came from you know acting royalty with who her parents were. But the other smart thing that Spielberg did was he re- he didn't ever allow the children to see the the, the puppeteering behind it. They, he only wanted to see when, when the puppet was ready. And he shot the movie in chronological order. So by the time we came up to those really heartbreaking emotional scenes where E.T. is, you know, virtually dying with all these, you know, evil looking scientist guys probing him behind the plastic, that reaction you get from Drew Barrymore when they're trying to like, you know, you know, bring him back to life. I mean, she is crying for real. Like she was shaken up on that set. And Henry Thomas, you know, he always said those, those tears are real. Like they just became so engrossed with it. But yeah, it, Again, that movie was about the kids. E.T. was left on Earth. You know, he was kind of forgotten. Elliot, Henry Thomas' character, of course, was a kid that never, he was a loner. He couldn't quite fit in. He wasn't coping well dealing with, uh, you know, growing up in a a divorced household. And so those those two characters were were connected. And um, it's just... Like I said, I hadn't watched it in years till yesterday, and I thought I'd throw it on again. And my God, it is just as effective now as it was back then. Like, I'm a 46 year old man, and I was almost blubbering like I was seven years old again in that theater. It was ridiculous. Did you notice anything about it this time? <laughs> I get you. Like I, I, you know, I felt the same way watching the clips. You know, sort of rewatching just the highlights of it to try and find some some audio for tonight. I, it all came back. You know, those scenes of him getting drunk and uh, and Drew Barrymore's character, obviously. Uh, you know, but it was yeah, him seeing Yoda on the street, which was apparently yeah. a nod in that Halloween walk where he notices Yoda, and that was apparently a nod to Lucas by Spielberg. Yeah, there was also a deleted scene, I believe, where uh, Elliot gets called in the principal's office out of school, you know, because he's a little bit of an outcast child. And the principal was played by Harrison Ford, but it never made it to the final cut, you know, just <laughs> throwing in more of that there. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, did you notice anything watching it this time that you hadn't remembered? Because I, it's funny when you when you think about movies, sometimes when you see them again, you realize that you'd kind of reinvented the movie in your mind. Usually they're a lot shorter and you've kind of reinvented parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. like I said, I forgot, like, I thought maybe I was overreacting thinking about my childhood 
remembering it, watching it as a kid, like how terrifying certain moments were, especially with the scientists breaking into the house and stuff. But again, watching it yesterday, and this is like a grown adult, it is still terrifying. Like, yeah, these, you know, like this was like <clears throat> a movie that almost showed like, oh, you know, don't trust the scientists, don't trust the government. They're there to probe and take advantage of you in so many ways at a sinister level. And I just, from a child's point of view, watching that movie, it, it's got to be terrifying still. And it still freaked me out as an adult. But, um, you know, the, the other thing that that movie, and I don't know if it, it, you feel the same way. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of my younger customers where I tell them, like, listen, man, like, there's something about that era of filmmaking that the magic is kind of gone in a weird way because, that maybe it was John Williams' music. I don't know, but it just it, it made you feel like, man, look, nobody has a cell phone. Let's just go on our on our BMXs and go on an adventure and let's save an alien. Let's you know, let's 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 get in these crazy things. Like, it just you can't recapture that that era anymore. I don't think. I know Stranger Things tries desperately, but there's just something innocent and pure about it. I mean. Literally, if I may say, just before we got on here, obviously I listened to, you know, what's going on in the news uh, before before we started talking here. I'm like, oh, everything's just terrible and depressing these days, isn't it? Thank you, E.T. Thank you for reminding me of a simpler time. And uh, it was, that was the it magic was, of Spielberg of the 80s, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think when they, they didn't have as much reliance on special effects and so on, that there was just a lot of storytelling. That I mean, at the, yeah. at the end of it, E.T. is just a very well-told tale. It's a very good story uh, in many ways. And, and, and you know, I, I've tried to force people to, I've tried to force younger people to watch things like The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and like, oh my God, this is slow. And you're like, well, yeah, it was a bit slow, but you know, there's a car chase, I think, coming up maybe. Yeah. You know what's funny though, Ben, when, when I try to get the other people to watch it, they'll, they'll, they'll come back like, yo, Cap, I watched that movie, but man, some of that stuff they say, you can't say that anymore. That's very, that too. how do we say There's politically incorrect? You know, you know, my excuses, I'm always like, hey, it was the 80s. It was a different time. All right. They meant well, just, you know, we've learned, but uh, just, just, just take the good stuff, not the bad stuff. But uh E.T. Yeah, is the, it, definitely right, E.T. is definitely the good E.T. is definitely the good stuff. I would say. Oh, it was beyond the good stuff. You know, uh, another thing they really tried to pressure Spielberg to do the sequel, and he was right. contemplating it. And the idea of the sequel was going to be E.T. kind of comes back to Earth, but along with E.T., more of his race comes. But these ones are a little bit more mischievous, and they end up causing havoc in a small town. <laughs> And instead of doing an E.T. sequel, that concept turned into the 1984 movie Gremlins instead. I, I remember it well. Gremlins was fantastic. Another good, I mean, again, another movie you probably couldn't remake today, but it was, it was certainly good at the time. Now, that, was, uh, that was a good, <laughs> you're right, it was, it was a magical time. Even the Goonies, Stand By Me would be my favorite of oh. other ones of that, of that bunch. Stand my By fun. Me, you know, it's funny, whenever, it's, it, that movie has aged so well, and also people, like, the last person you think linked to Stand By Me is Stephen King. When you say Stephen King, you don't think of Stand By Me, but no. that's his, and that it is. is fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I guess that's what shows, like, Stranger Things in today's era are trying to recapture that that, that time and in that frame, but... Um, you know, and, and God bless, they're doing the best they can, but it's, it's hard to replicate something uh, of, of, you know, anything between, like, what we're talking, 1982 to probably 1988 was just, especially with kids' adventure movies, it was just something, 
I don't know. Before, you're right. And they never had to rely on special effects. I mean, this yep. is before the Harry Potters of the world. So, yeah. And, and, and Kevin, you know, as they say, you know, you can't go back. We can't be young again, unfortunately. So it is about, it's a magical time. It's like hearing, I don't know, it's like hearing Hall and Oates on the radio or something. You know, it brings back, you got it, it brings well, back hey, memories. We, <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. Hey, we live in a time right now, though, we can go back because, you know, I, I know I, I mentioned Stranger strange Things twice. The number one song on Billboard charts right now is Kate Bush. And that's because of Stranger that. Things. A Absolutely. 935 song has reached number one again because of a, a TV top, show paying yeah, tribute at, to the 80s. And a Top, a top Gun movie is number one. Kate Bush is number one. Feels and like the, the Russians are evil again, so yeah. it's the 80s. What it's are you going to do, 80s. right? Exactly. <laughs> Kevin Martin, thanks so much for your time. It's been fascinating. My favorite Spielberg film, kind of a weird I always liked Duel. If you, I don't know if you've seen his first one. Duel Brother, that was his that's major awesome TV movie. Yeah, I love, love it. One. It's a fantastic yeah. film. And remember this, when that truck goes off the cliff at the end, that sound yep. you hear is the roar that you also hear after Bruce the Shark gets shot by Chief Brody and Jaws. He uses the exact really? same sound. God bless. I didn't know that. I'll have to remember and watch them both. Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time tonight. Hey, Ben, thanks. Anytime, man. Anytime. You want to nerd out anytime, you let me know. I'm there for you. Baby. Welcome. All right. <laughs>